Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is David Goggins. He's a retired United States Navy SEAL, ultramarathon runner, triathlete, public speaker, and an author. The ability to overcome challenges in life is one we will all need sooner or later. Make no mistake, discomfort is coming for you, whether you're ready or not. Goggins happens to be one of the best individuals on earth at dealing with hard things, and after a very long time without any podcast appearances, I might have been in Vegas to find out what new insights he's uncovered. Expect to learn what most people get wrong about motivation, Goggins' thoughts on claims that SEAL selection is too hard, what the most painful experience of his life was, the danger of success making you soft, why he ran the Moab 240 twice with no knee cartilage, why he recorded a mixtape of insults from the internet, how to overcome laziness, what David's entire daily routine looks like, and much more. This is a very special episode. I hope that you take absolutely tons away from it. It's open and vulnerable. It's raw. It's motivational. It's fantastic. The, the guy is the real deal. However legit you think David Goggins is, He's even more legit than that. I can't wait to get this episode out. And if you fall in love with the audio version, there is a beautiful 4K cinematic production available on the Chris Williamson YouTube channel, which you can go and check out. Also, I am sorry to say that this is only one of two podcasts that David will be doing in total for his new book. So he did Rogan in December. He's doing Modern Wisdom right now. And that's it. And he's going away for maybe another four years or so. So if you are a David Goggins fan, this is all you're getting. And if you would like to say thank you to me for somehow managing to swindle my way into being one of only two podcasts that he did, all that I would ask of you is that you hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to. It genuinely does help the show. It makes me very happy indeed. And it ensures that you will never miss an episode when they go live. But if you want to be a superstar, you can share the episode with a friend as well. Anyway, enough of that. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Goggins. David Goggins, welcome to the show. Hey man, I appreciate you having me, brother. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Where have you been for the last four years? You've been jumping out of <laughs> helicopters and fighting fires and shit. What have you been doing? Well, I did that last year. Well, I guess this year I did that. But I've just, I just do me, you know. I'm out there running, working out, and uh, just trying to find out more of what this is all about, trying to find out more of what I'm all about. So that takes me getting away. You know, I'm not about even doing these podcasts, man. So not nothing against you. But um, I'm not about all this stuff. I'm not one that likes to hear himself talk a lot. Um, I'm about action. And action means less talking and more doing. So that's where I've been. What is that smoke jumping stuff? So basically, it's, um, you know about wildland firefighting, about when the forest has fires. There's a lot of times there's roads and there's access to get there. So these, you know, whether it be a um, hotshot crew or whatever, these different crews who come in by vehicle, they can get into the fire that way. What a smoke jumper is, is you can't get a vehicle into that place. It is a spot where it's tight. There's no vehicles. There's no access. So they'll send us in there, smoke jumpers, jump onto airplanes, and we'll land in these really tight, small drop zones with all of our gear 
and we'll put the fire out. How do you take water in? We jump out. So everything is- Hang on. You're jumping out of a- Airplane. Parachute. With backpacks of water, like a camel pack type thing? So we'll jump out. We'll have this, it's called a ditty pack. And it, and it sits in, you know, it sits like by your waist, you know, yep. on your legs area when you jump out. And that has a lot of your gear. But what happens is once you jump out, the aircraft will go lower and it will push out all the rest of your gear. Your water pumps. Oh, and that'll get airdropped in yeah. with its own little parachutes. Right. Right. Got you, got you, got you. So a lot of our main gear gets dropped into us. And then we're out there for several days until the fire is put out by us and only us. That's insane. It's insane. Yeah. Why do you do that? Well, when I left the military, um, you're, I'm always looking for more. I'm always looking for what's the next thing for myself. How can I grow? And that right there was the next thing for me. You know, I didn't want to sit back and, you know, just enjoy my retirement from the military. That's, there's, there, there's no growth in that. So I decided to go out and do this. So You jump out of an aeroplane mm-hmm. with a team. You get your kit also parachuted out of the back. Mm-hmm. You're now in the middle of an area where there's no evac. There's no vehicles that can come and get you. Mm-hmm. There's a fire. Mm-hmm. You need to put the fire out yep. and you don't stop until you're done. That's it. Sometimes... There is a way to get out, but a lot of times it's just, you know, if someone gets hurt on the jump, a lot of times we have to build, like cut down a bunch of trees so a helicopter can come in, land and get them out. So we are the only access. We have to save ourselves. So a lot of times we are the team to get us in and to get us out. What was the longest mission exercise that you did? I think the longest one I did was seven days. So, and what's the sort of daily routine? Are you sleeping? Do you get much sleep at all? No, not really. So what happens is, and the thing about being in Canada, so I do this out of, uh, out of British Columbia. So what happens is there's a lot of daylight. When I'm, so when I'm out there, man, there's a lot of daylight. In the middle of the summer when it's That's hottest, right. when you've got tons of, right, okay. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. There's, not much, there's not much dark. So you're basically working a lot of hours. So, and then when it gets dark, you're actually working through the nighttime. And then you get a little, you know, you get a little rest and you wake up and you're at it again. And then when the fire's out, you patrol the fire, make sure there's no more hot spots, make sure everything is black and wet, because we we literally wet the whole area down. So there's no hot spots. And then when that's all done, we'll demob, which means we'll clean up all the stuff, all our hoses, you know, we'll we'll pack up all our stuff and then we'll we'll get out of there. Did you ask to be paid for this? I <laughs> I get about, I think the, the, the pay is about 12 to 15 bucks an hour. So it was funny about it, man. Like when I first started doing this job, um, people didn't know that, you know, I'm actually successful in business and didn't realize that I was like basically turned down millions of dollars to do this job and they can continue thinking it. To make 15 bucks an to hour. To make 15 bucks an hour. So yeah. But, you know, like I said, for me, the, the, the whole money part of it, it's, it's, it's not what it's about. I'm all about that growth. And, and that growth isn't in these massive paychecks for speaking to corporations, stuff like that. The growth for me is in that 12 to $15 an hour when you're out there and it's like 20, you know, 20 degrees and you're freezing your ass off and you're thinking, you know what? I don't need to be here anymore. And you start questioning yourself why you're here. And there's a lot of growth in that. 
Why did you decide to release another book? What was undone with the first one? Well, the first one was basically um, a bachelor's degree with the mind, is how I look at it. And no one knew who I was. So this is the book, Never Finished is the book that I wanted to come out first. But how am I going to get so deep into something when no one knows who the hell I am? So first, I have to give you some backstory on who the hell David Goggins is. Some credentials. That's it. And so I got some basic credentials out there. And now I can dive in more because most people think I'm just some grandmother who runs and yells and just says fuck and motherfuck all the time. And that's nowhere near the truth. That's maybe what they see in a one-minute video. And that's what people believe. But there's a lot of thought behind a person being a born loser becoming who I am today. You don't just wake up and just rocky the shit. You got to wake up and think about, you know, there's a process to getting better. And that process is never finished. It's an appropriate title. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is the danger of success making you soft. Mm -hmm. And this must be something that you've battled with over the last few years. Right. More money, more attention, more fame, more free things if you wanted, more opportunities to go places and do stuff with people. Right. How have you dealt with this battle of success not making you soft? You have to cap it. You have to learn to cap success. So what I do is, like right now, I don't like doing podcasts. There's a lot of things I don't do have to do now to get the messages out there to help people out. And what I mean by capping success, I believe everybody should live their life. So everything that someone says in life, take it with a grain of salt. Take what they give and don't be like, oh, David Goggins said this or whoever said this. No, do not take what I say and do exactly what I say. So for me, what makes me who I am, because my mission is very different than yours or anybody else's, I have to go into a situation knowing, okay, I'm a guy who wants to make people better. For people to get better, I have to continuously get better myself. For me to do that, I can't just say, oh, I have this resume. The resume is there forever. I'm good. I have to cap my success because for me to help people out, I can't just say I did it once and I'm good. I have to continue to reinvent the wheel of the mind and figure out more and more ways for you to pull. Because if I have a cookie cutter message, it may hit five people out of 25. You just failed. My message needs to be in a way where I can hit all 25 people. It needs to be broad enough to where all 25 people may not like the message, but they're getting something from it. And that is evolution. You must continue to evolve. And you don't evolve for me in my job unless I cap myself somewhere and say, okay, you made this much money, get back to fucking work. It's time to get back to work. Stop hearing yourself talk. Get off the podcast. Don't be on social media too much. Cut out all the fucking noise. Get back to the fucking mental lab because that's where the knowledge came from. So for me, I must cap myself so I can come back with better, more unique knowledge versus the cook, you know, all that cookie cutter knowledge that's out there. That's why people buy the books I have because it's not cookie cutter. It's but real knowledge. The other thing now is when you first started, you were a Lone Ranger. Right. Nobody really knew who you were outside of some obscure endurance places and half-heard truths of these weird myths. Right. But now you've got people's expectations mm-hmm. layered on top as well. Mm-hmm. So not only have you got to deal with 
success potentially making you soft. So you've got to cap that. You've got to say no to more money and opportunities and cool people. Right. You've also got this extra layer of expectation mm -hmm. that's coming through from other people too. And I think that you talk about trained humility right. in the new book too. Mm -hmm. I've got to presume that that fits into this equation. Right. It fits in big time. Um, and that's one big reason why I do fight fire because you, all the knowledge for myself comes from that place. It doesn't come from the place of success. My knowledge does not come from the place. Of, like, cause for me, like I built Goggins from the ground up. I was born David Goggins. David Goggins wasn't good enough. He was a scared, bullied, uh, abused kid, um, who struggled in life. And that kid, whenever something got tough, no matter how hard I trained, no matter how ready I was, whenever something got tough for me, David Goggins, the real David Goggins would come out and he would quit. So I realized this over a period of time. So I had to build Goggins. And in that process, I have to go back to that mental lab and that mental lab is at scratch. That mental lab isn't that trained humility. And so that's where I get better. I get better when I'm digging holes in the ground, when I'm waking up early knowing I don't have to do these things. That's where I get better. So it's important to stay hungry. It's important to stay hungry, but it's important more to stay humble within that hunger. So while you're hungry, a lot of people are hungry, but humility is everything. What was that story about William Crawford, the janitor? Yeah. So this guy won the Medal of Honor. So he won the Medal of Honor, and which is the highest award in the military. And this guy went to the Air Force Academy, and he was a janitor. And no one knew who the fuck this man was. He had the highest award in all the military for heroics for heroics, saving lives, putting his life on the line, could have, you know, could have been killed. And he is now basically, you know, cleaning shitters for young kids. And we can all imagine how that probably went. You know, there's probably some, you know, little bit of taunting here and there. And he just sat there and cleaned the shitter. So that's why he's in my trained humility part, because for this man to be at the level he was and have that kind of humility to go, I'm a Medal of Honor winner, but I'm going to put that in my closet and I'm going to pick up my broom and dustpan and I'm going to pick up, you know, this rag and clean this shit for these young men. That right there is amazing for me, man. That's, that's where you grow. That's, that's growth, huge growth. And also it shows that he was doing his job. He was a servant. He didn't look at himself any better than anybody else. And the second you do that, you totally lost. You cannot look at yourself like people with me even. I, always look at people. I, I know where you are. I know where, cause I've been there. That's why I help so many people out. I've, I've never been above you. I've always pretty much been beneath you. And that's where my knowledge came from. So I know how to reach those people who are in the dungeon because I've been there so many times. Speaking of getting too soft, did you see that there was a news story that came out recently about the treatment of seals during the selection process? <laughs> Do you see this? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, they were getting uh, sprayed with tear gas uh, yeah. whilst they were on the ground and they were made to sing happy birthday so that they couldn't hold their breath while right. it was happening. Right. And there was a, a quote from uh, this guy, I think this type of training is really senseless, said Sven Yort, 
a Duke University associate professor who studies tear gas and its effects. It looks more like a form of hazing. Right. I see all that. Trust me. Like I said, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I understand that guy. I understand exactly where you're coming from. That is your personal opinion, and I totally get that. But there's very few people in this world who want to do a job like that. And it takes a different kind of mindset. Is it tear grass appropriate? I don't know. How hard that training is, I don't expect anybody to understand it but 1%. But the loud voices of this world are the 99% who don't understand exactly what you have to do. That's why when I speak and you don't understand me, it's probably a good thing because that probably means I'm in an area of life that you're not in, which is fine. That's why I don't judge people. And this guy right here judging that, unless you've been there and done that and you really can't speak about it unless you're in those situations that are so hard that takes a special human being to get through them. I think it's the same kind of feeling that I get when I heard about Elon Musk telling the employees at Twitter, Mm -hmm. we're going to ask you to work harder than you've ever worked in your life. This is a place, Twitter is now a company where people can go if they want to be in the top 0.0001% of hardworking programmers and software developers on the planet. That's right. And there was... Everybody was up in arms. This is unbelievable. We're going back to this old version of capitalism where the, the worker is being abused and used and thrown away. What they didn't account for is that there is a non-insignificant cohort of people for whom that's their dream. That's right. People who want to be able to get up on a morning, having gone to bed four hours before, and can contribute to some sort of progress that's that right. they think, this, this is what I'm here for. Yep. And it's the same with the SEALs. If you're not the sort of person that is built to go through selection – it's like speaking a different language. That's it. And that's why I don't try to convince people otherwise. I understand that why you're confused. I understand why you say things like that. I'm not saying anything bad about that. I understand it. But also what you don't understand, what you fail to understand is the other side that you need people like that. You need the Elon Musks. You need the David Goggins. You need some of these Navy SEALs, some of these other people. You need those people. And they don't, they forget that. And it takes a very, very unique person and unique mind to do some of these jobs that are necessary in this world. Well, especially when we're thinking about someone going to war. Right. Do you want your armed forces to be underprepared for the battlefield because you didn't want to be too mean to them in advance? That's, That's the problem. That's the problem. And that's a problem that I've always had. I've always had is that right there is that with even, even some of the most trained people in the world fall back on that. It's easy to talk about. Like I said, when you go through it once, when it's a perishable skill, hardness, mental hardening, mental toughness, it's a perishable skill. Just because you, went through some training once and you got through it, doesn't mean it lasts fucking forever. And that's where most people hated me in my life because I realized that. You don't just say, oh, I got it. I'm checked off. I'm good for the rest of my life. That's why you have to recall. You recall on fucking everything. And you definitely must recall when it comes to the mind. 
that is one of the biggest requalifications you must have. And when you're at that level, you got to recall every fucking day, not once a year. One of the other things that you did to stop yourself from getting soft was running the Moab 240. Yep. Talk me through that experience. So um, I hadn't run a 100-mile race, and I think it was about six years. You know, I had, you know, some heart surgeries. I had some, maybe some questioning in my mind about, I call it part-time savage. I started kind of going through this. I started getting, you know, a little bit of injuries, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Things that back in the day never slowed me down. So when I got my head out of my ass and realized that, hey, we have more left, we can still push harder, we're not there yet. I realized, talking to a guy named Cameron Haynes, who did this race, 240-mile race. And um, I'll say, I go, is, is, this the, is this the new level? Is this the new, is this the new push? So when I decided to do that race, it was in the back of my mind, like, man, I've really become an expert at running 100-mile races. So for me, this was the new level, the 200-plus-mile race. And what was so amazing about that, as you probably read in the book, I had a hard time the first time doing it. I came back and did better. But what's amazing about the human mind is that it becomes your new norm. Like, to, to, to think that I can run 200 miles, 240 miles, and that becomes like running 50. I never thought that was possible. This is why I'm, I'm always pushing that limit because I know that within pushing these limits, there's always more. So I end up doing like almost like back-to-back 200-mile runs. When the 200-mile race, 240-mile race was hard at once, it became something that was very easy after I figured it out. So that's why that happened. Well, you got lost mm-hmm. on the first one. Oh, yeah. And then you went to bed and woke up halfway through the night and nudged Kish and said, how long have we got left until the end of the race? But because you hadn't completed the official route, you couldn't go across the official finish line. Yeah. So you ring your race... Um, like paces, mm-hmm. some of whom had gone home. Yep. What, like, what, what do you think? It's so three in the morning and you're ringing people saying, you know that race that we just finished because of health problems? Right. Can we go back and finish it? So the crazy thing about that in that, in that spot, so I got lost the first time. I got seriously sick, was off course. So basically I bed down about 12 hours. Then I got back in the race. So I was still part of the official race now. Okay. So the first time I got lost, I, I got sick, got back, got lost, got back in the race after 12 hours of being out of the race. So now I get to about 200 and some odd miles and I'm sick as hell. Can't breathe, high altitude pulmonary edema, totally jacked up. And now the doctor tells me if you get off course now and you go to the doctor, you won't be able to come back and finish the race. So I had to make a, a call. Like, you know what? I'm pretty messed up, got off. So this is where you're talking about. I'm literally laying in bed and I'm feeling better. And I thought, honestly, I swear to God, I thought that someone was speaking to me. I thought it was Jennifer. It was like, you're not done yet, motherfucker. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? It was actually probably my subconscious saying, get your ass back out there. So I wake Jennifer up. I'm like, hey, how much time do we have into the cutoff? I know that I'm already, you know, DNF'd. So now what happens here, I'm not going to be an official finisher of this race. This isn't for glory. No. This is now for the fact that you can. 
So either you can sit here and not and think about that for a whole year until you come back here and do this, or you can go out there for yourself and take some, some kind of pride in knowing that you could and you did. So basically, I wake her up. How much time left? She goes, something like, I don't know what it was. What did you say what time was? Like, you know, whatever. And half my crew had left. And there was two people there. I woke them up. They were getting ready to get on a plane. I said, look, can you guys help me out? I have 40 miles to go. I'm going to have Jennifer drop me back off at the spot where I left. Then I'm going to finish this fucking race. And I couldn't cross the finish line because I wasn't an official finisher. So I ended up finishing on a road on, you know, by, a, by a telephone pole, and that was my official finish. It ended up being like 250 miles, 255 miles. But it's one of the best races of all time because we're going through it fast. But all the fucking times that I was like, this is, I, I'm not going back. And I went back. I'm not going back. And I went back. I'm not going back. And I went back. It showed me even more of what we have as, as, as humans if we're willing to go there and we're willing to push that extra step. And like I say, you know, I always tell people, a lot of people, man, how do you do what you do? At the end of the day, I ask myself one question. Can I take one more step? And usually the answer is yes. So if you can answer that question and not take another step, that is real failure. That is real quitting. So a lot of people can take one more step, but they choose not to. I don't know if you can take two steps. You got to answer that question after you take the first step. But I can always take one more step. So if I choose not to, that's on me. And I got to live with that. Does that link in with the one second decision? Yes. Yes. So the one second decision is I had to live through that one second decision several times during this race. So this race took me a hundred and some hours. Okay. And this is what people don't get for you to finish that race. Even though I DNF'd, I still finished in the time. So there's a lot of pride in that. If you're a hundred and some odd hours, let me use hell week. This is a perfect example. Hell week's 130 hours. And 130 hours is a lot of seconds, a lot of fucking seconds. And if you lose, let's say you win every second but one, you lost. It only takes one second for you to lose the whole thing. So the one second decision is just that. You're in a situation where life is sucking. Let's say you're in extreme cold water and your life is flashing before your eyes. Every time that wave goes over your head, your thought process is, I got to get the fuck out of this water. And you're in hell week. And you're hour one of 130 fucking hours. It's all fun and games, okay? Because at the beginning of hell week, the guns are going off. It's like a pep rally. So you're fucking hyped up. And your boys are linked arms and you're getting sprayed. And it's like a fucking pep rally. The instructors are yelling at you. Bombs are going off. Concussion grenades. Blanks from N60s. Yeah, hoo-yah, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, motherfucker, yeah. But then what they do is they shut that shit off. They shut it off. All that hoo-yah, all that hype gets real quiet. And they march you out to that surf zone for something called surf torture. And it's that water, that Pacific Ocean is cold as shit. 
So no more pep rally. You're now in your head. You're linked arms with, you know, your brothers beside you. You don't know if they're going to be there long or not. You don't care. You think about yourself. You lay back and that first wave hits you. Your mind goes straight from hour two all the way to hour 130. You can't process five days of this shit. You're now in a, you're, you're now in a fuck you. Like, I got to get out of here. You're in fight or flight. It's cold. I can't be cold this long. And then this is where that one second decision comes in. You forgot every reason why you wanted to be there. You don't care about SEALs. You don't care about any of this. You don't care about fighting for your country. You don't care about that gaudy gold trident that they put on your chest. You don't care about any of that shit no more. All you want to do is go back home. You want the warmth. You may want something to eat. You want your girl to hold you. All those things of comfort are there in that one second. And this is where people lose. So what I do in that one second, because we all think about quitting when shit's hard. But what you have to do in that one second is hard to process information during pain. Because that pain takes over and you can't think rationally. You're thinking about fight or flight, save yourself. That's not a rational thought. It's not a thought that's going to get you through hard times. Most people fail that one second. So what happens, what I do in that one second, and there's a bigger process to all this, but in that one second, I physically stayed in that water. Because if I get out of the water, I quit. So I physically stay in the water, but mentally, I'm on the fucking beach with the fucking instructors. And the instructors, it's cold outside, so they got these parkers on. They got their cup of fucking Joe. And they're warm because they've already been through it. So now it's your turn to go through it. So mainly I get back with them. I'm still in the water physically, but mainly I'm back with them. I'm chilling. I got my parka on. And now I'm thinking logically because I'm warm now. Mentally, I'm warm. I've taken that one second. Let's not quit yet, Goggins. Let's fucking think about your options. Where are you going to end up if you quit this shit? Where are you going to go? What are you going to say to yourself? Because you know you're going to get warm. The second you get out of this water, you can take a shower and you're going to be warm. And you could be, and in five days, you could be out. So I start thinking logically. I calm my brain down because your brain just wants to get the fuck out. Ring the bell, push your helmet down, get warm, and then you're really fucked. And these are the things you have to think about in one second decision. So that's what that's all about. It's about gaining control of your mind, putting things back in the proper perspective, and then saying, I really do want to be here. And I'm going to have a bunch of these one seconds through this 130-hour journey. And I have to learn to control these because if I fail one of these one seconds, I will not be a SEAL. I will not be a doctor. I will not be a lawyer. I will not be whatever the fuck it is. So that's how important that one-second decision is. It's all about your mind takes control of you. You have to say, fuck you. I run this motherfucker. And that's what that's all about. Projecting yourself forward to see what are the consequences of failing. What are the consequences of stopping? Yep. Is about as powerful of a motivation strategy as I can think of, you know? Because what you're doing is you're trying to optimize right now to stop the discomfort. That's right. But what you're going to pay for that in is shame and That's guilt right. and regret long term. That's right. So what you need to be able to do is bundle all of that up that is as yet unfelt, but That's will right. last for way, way, way longer 
You know, the future is much longer than now. That's right. The future is going to extend out up until the day that you die. Mm-hmm. And the now is just for now. And even 130 hours is just 130 hours. That's right. And you get to look back and do you look back with pride and glory or do you look back with shame and guilt? That's it. That's, that's the one second. You just summarized it right there. And most people fail those one seconds. And then that one second leads to 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of fuck. I have people who have been through training with me Ranger school, SEAL training, Air Force training. And I get calls from them today and they have great lives. And all they talk about is how they failed in that one moment. And they can't even great. They can't even enjoy their life now because they're now warm. They're now warm. There's no more suffering. There's no more suffering for me either. And we're in the same boat now, but you're suffering. So we're not suffering, but you're thinking about what you could have been. I am exactly what I should have been. And that's where people start to lose it. Because now I I realize that in that one second. I go through all that. I know how it's going to feel because I failed so many times before. Failure is the ultimate thing, man. I failed so many times before. That's why I don't look at failure anymore as failure. I look at it as my first, second, and third attempt. So that's what that's all about, man. Well, I mean, you went back to go and do Moab again mm-hmm. the second time. That's right. Which is your second attempt. That's right. Had you banged your knee up? It was pretty bad in between the first and the second one. It was pretty bad way before either one of them. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. It was, it's been jacked up now for about 20 years. I've seen some gnarly photos of it recently. It looks yeah. interesting. Yeah. So all those miles I've run on this thing, it's, it's, uh, it's been a lot of uh, it's, it's been a lot of gut checks. So you go back. You do Moab a second time. Yep. And then you turn your ass into like a hamburger or something (laughs) as well. So it's not just the knee, it's the ass as well now. Yeah. So at mile 201, we have a good video of it. Matter of fact, Jennifer is like, there's some people up there. So So 201 is a spot where I was really finished in the first Moab. So that was a, um, it was, a way marker checkpoint for you yes. the second time. So Jennifer is extremely happy right now because I'm there. Yes. And she knows I'm doing well now. I'm doing good. We're going to get through this. And so she's videoing me as I'm coming up this climb on this road. And she goes, there's some people up here who want to meet you. You're doing so amazing. And I said, my ass is fucked up. You need to get the fucking desitin cream. And it's literally... For like 20 fucking miles. that Like people don't get it, man. When you get raw like that, bro, and you're walking because you, the, the chafing of my ass, it was hamburger meat. And I'm like, so she's all fucking happy and shit. She's, and I just look at her and I'm going to put the video up on social media because it's, it's, but she's a fucking trooper, bro. Hang on. So could she, was the leakage? Oh Yeah. That was on the video from behind? So my shorts were absolutely raw dogged. Yeah. So when you pull them down, it's just blood. And so she goes in the bathroom because she didn't know what she was going to see. She has a desitin cream. She walks in there and I pull them down and spread them open. And I go, put that shit all up in there. So she goes in for the kill. And she's putting this destin cream all over the fucking place, man. And you know what? This is the funny thing about it. That's when you know you got a good motherfucker with you, man. When you're that raw and you're that fucked up and she's just like nothing. 
It was like saying, hey, can you like put some lotion on my back before I go lay out? That's how she was in there, man, getting in it. That's it, man. Have you considered that that might be the most traumatic event of all of the things that you've done in your life, what you asked Jennifer to do that day? No, not at all. She did worse. (laughs) So that Leadville chapter, when I talk about after I finished, and then the ultra raveling or unraveling had, had begun, when I lay down... So, oh, that was on the duvet, and you yeah. didn't know the word duvet. Yeah, I know what the fuck duvet was. How the fuck was. do you not know the word duvet? Blanket, man. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Help from the streets, we call them blankets. Okay. Anything that you wrap up in is a fucking blanket. Cool. So, I'm laying on the duvet, and she's all fucking like about her damn ratings, that fucking the Airbnb shit. And I'm really like, hey, I'm about to shit oh, fuck, right because here. it's not your place. No. Okay. No. Right. Yes. I can see why she so would be concerned. So that yep. scene is uh is is was was bad. But once again, she like soldiered a crime, up. Like a crime scene. It's, yes, it was a crime scene. So you've done all of this stuff, right? You've done the seal selection week three times, yep. strapping the legs up so that you can run a Badwater ultra race. Yep. The Aspergers, everything. Yes. Of all of the physical pursuits that you've endured, which has been the most painful? By far. By far, my first 100-mile race. By far. This 2019 Moab, the one that I DNF but still finished, <clears throat> that's up there. But when you are um, so, I guess, you're, you're, you're not prepared to run 100 miles and you take it for granted and you didn't do any training at all and you didn't have the right nutrition and off a of whim, like literally, you're like, you know what? I want to raise money for a foundation. And that's how that happened. So I don't know if you know the story or not, but basically I'm sitting there and the lone survivor incident happened where a bunch of, you know, some SEALs died. I want to raise money for them. I went to training with most of these guys. So I had the bright idea to uh, raise money. You know, I wasn't going to do a hot dog or hamburger sale. I was going to do something that people would be attracted to. So I, I Googled the world's toughest events. And what comes up is this race called the Badwater 135. It's a 135-mile race through Death Valley in the summertime. Now, I had no idea about ultra running. I didn't know what the fuck ultra running was. But when I heard, so when I saw 135 miles, I automatically assumed it was a stage race where you ran like maybe 10, 15 miles, bed down, and you got up the next morning and did it. So when I called the race director up, Chris Kosman, I'm like, hey, I would like to do this race to raise money for a foundation. He goes, have you ever run a hundred miles? And I was like, like in, in a week or like, like what are you talking about? He goes, no, like in 24 hours. Cause that's what you got to do to qualify. And I was like, is that even, is that even possible? Like I, I didn't know. So anyway, he goes, no, you can't get in my race unless you qualify. And I call him up on a Wednesday and that Saturday, and I was a bodybuilder at the time. I did cardio, 20 minutes a week on the elliptical trainer every Sunday. He goes, yeah, Saturday, you're in San Diego. Saturday is a 24-hour race where you run around a one-mile track for 24 hours. And if you can get 100 miles, I'll consider you in my race. So I'll go sign up for this race. And the first 70 miles, I'm doing pretty good. And then I hadn't sat down. I was uh, hadn't gone to the bathroom. I was eating, I was drinking Mileplex and Rich Crackers. I was, you know, eating Rich Crackers. So, elite nutrition. Yeah, elite 
elite, high-quality nutrition. So what happens when you're that ignorant and you go out to do this race and you sit down in the chair, your body's done. So I'm sitting there, and when you sit down for the first time in over 12 hours, your body's now going through some metamorphosis. Like, go fucking home. Go, go to a doctor, get some help. But I'm sitting there, and I have this urge to go to the bathroom. And there's a porta potty for me that fucking wall, but I can't get up because my blood pressure's all messed up from my great nutrition that I was on. And so I can't stand up. So I look at my ex-wife and I literally say, I'm going to shit on myself right now. So I sit there and I'm, I'm shitting up my back and I'm peeing blood down my leg. And I have 30 miles to go. And I end up finding a way to get through that 30 miles. And when I got done with that race, it's the worst pain I can ever even, I can't even describe the pain of that last 30 miles to anybody. No one, it's very hard. Whole body? Whole body. I'm, so when it ended, I, I, I'm literally dizzy going up my stairs to, to get to my house. I'm literally, I have my arms wrapped around her going up the stairs and every flight of stairs, I got I have to lay down because I can't stay upright for too long or I'm going to pass out. So I finally get in the house and when I get in the house, I'm once again on the floor. I'm in the kitchen on the floor, just laying there. I finally make it to the bathroom, into the tub. I get rolled in the tub, and she puts the water on me. I'm just laying there with the water coming on me. And what I pee out looks like Coca-Cola. And I'm laying there in the worst pain of my entire life. I'm shaking. I'm jacked up. And all I could think about was, I can't believe what I just done. Because when you get to 70 miles of a race and you felt the way I did, it's to me, it was humanly impossible to even think about going 30 more miles in that shape. And once you do it, what, what came over me when that shower hit me and, it, and the reality hit that I just went 101 miles. And that last 31 miles was something that I can't even describe to people. And She's like, we got to get you to the hospital. So at the time, my mom was seeing this doctor and he was like, you know, so, so she's describing to my mom what I'm going through. He's like, you got to get in the hospital now. And I just said, just, just shut up and let me enjoy this pain. I don't want anything to numb it. I don't want anything right now. Because what I had done was I just, in my mind, and people will take this wrong and take it as wrong as you want to. I don't really care. I had just climbed a mental wall that was amazing. And I didn't want anybody to take that pain away from me at that point because that was all confirmation. It seems like, I've heard you tell that story a number of times. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Did that set the tone or the rhythm for what you wanted to try and achieve and feel again? Each time that you're pushing further, there's more difficulty. I never wanted to feel it again. I never want to feel it again. But what it did was it showed me what is possible. And that's what set the new stage for me. That's when I realized, oh man, I've really been underachieving my entire life. I'm not saying that you have to go to that place because that place is a dangerous, dangerous place that- Borderline rhabdo, heart, everything. It wasn't borderline rhabdo. It was all that. But you don't want to go there. But- it taught me what is possible.
So from that 19-hour lesson, one of the biggest lessons I had in my life, it, it taught me like, okay, I got it. Check. Tell me about this mixtape of hate that you've made. <laughs> so what started happening is as you get bigger, as you get more successful, you open the door for people to critique every fucking thing you do. And most of the people who are critiquing you usually aren't where you are. And all their critiquing comes from people who are really at a low level of life, which is sad. But what we do, people who are on the upper level, hearing the haters at the lower level, like I said, you'll never meet a hater doing better than you. True statement. I started having fun with it. So I'll go through the comments. While, while most people don't go through comments, I go through them intentionally look for the bad ones. And while I'll block and delete you because the people on my page don't need that negative energy, I'll block and delete you, but I take a snapshot on my phone and I put it in the archive. So what happens is there's days where I'm like, you know what? I really don't want to do this today. And I'm like, oh, hang on. So I started making these mixtapes with all of these hate messages about people talking shit. And it became such a source of fuel that it was amazing because I know why you hate me. You hate me because you're probably in the bed right now. You're probably an underachiever. You're probably somebody who doesn't want to do anything with your life. So I make you question everything about yourself. So I'm going to continue making you question yourself by coming out here and being even more successful. So I listen to that while I run. I sometimes play it in the house and it sometimes gets on Jennifer's fucking nerves because I'm sitting and listening to somebody talk mad shit on a loop about me. And she's like, why do you do this shit? It's half comical and it's half, um, it's half inspiring. I'm actually inspired by it. I've heard you say previously that listening to music while you train is cheating. Mm -hmm. So what you're telling me mm -hmm. is that the silence of your own dark thoughts isn't enough of a soundtrack and you've had to crowdsource insults mm -hmm. from the internet, self-narrate it, yep. and then play it to yourself while you train. That's it. I do that sometimes, yes. <laughs> yes. Have you got your phone on you right now? I want to hear it. No, my, I, I don't travel with my phone. Oh, Yeah, my phone does not go with me anywhere. Why is that? Once again, man, like right now I'm with you. A lot of times people are in conversations or they're somewhere and they're elsewhere. You may think they're with you, but they're not. That phone is the biggest distraction in the world. When the time, so when it comes time for the phone, I'm on the phone. When not, I don't use it. I'm all about being present where I'm at. So that's why that phone right now, you know, no, we do have it. It's in your, it, it, it's silenced, it's off. So I do have my phone right now, but, but usually I don't take it anywhere I go. Got you. So while you're listening to the self-narrated insults of random people on the internet that you don't like, right? what are you thinking of while you're listening to that? while you're working out or while you're walking around the house? How that back in the day when I was sometimes getting bullied or in a dark place, how sometimes that would have bothered me. How I would want to clap back. I, I would want to be on there all day explaining myself to people and how now I'm in a place now where I can hear it and I can actually enjoy it. I can actually know where it's coming from. I've studied it. So I don't just like listen to it and like make fun of it. I actually study it because I was once that negative person. 
I was once that person who saw someone successful and didn't see how can I get there. I was like, oh, fuck that. They're probably cheating or they're probably doing this. I was, I was that negative person because I wasn't there. And I didn't want to work to get there. So these people who hate on people, I've studied them. And I've gained a lot of knowledge from them because I gained a lot of knowledge from myself when I was in that dark place. So It's almost like reflecting an older version of you back to yourself. 100%. I had this idea um, uh, called the reverse role model. So in a lot of places, people might grow up and not have good role models around them. You know, like it would be great if I had someone that was my hero that could tell me how to be X, uh, good in school, well with work, fantastic in relationships, whatever it might be. And a lot of people don't grow up with that. Right. And what I realized was, because that was me in, in part from where I was from, but I realized there was a lot of people that I got to see that were like the sort of person I didn't want to be like. Right. And that was the reverse role model. So I could look around and I could say, well, I really don't want his relationship with his wife. And I hate the way that he is using alcohol to get over the problems in his life. He doesn't have any integrity or tell the truth. She is a, a liar and a backstabber and a gossip. And the thing is that you can actually achieve a lot of success in life by avoiding failure. Mm-hmm. Like most success in life actually is avoiding failure. Yes, you need to be able to be competent, but first you need to not get out of the race. That's the one second decision, right? right. You need to not lose before you can win. Right. And the reverse role model is you weaving your way through a selection of people that you don't want to be like. And I think that you can get an awfully long way just by doing that. I did that my entire life. I had the ultimate blueprint by watching my family. I was the youngest kid. So the youngest kid has the total advantage. You know, you may get picked on, you may get bullied with everybody, but you sit back and exactly what you said. I sat back and watched my dad. Definitely don't want to do that. My mom, my brother, whoever it may be, I sat back and I paid attention to everything around me. And it was the ultimate blueprint to how to live life. How not to live life. How not to live life is I watched people do shit. And I said, ah, I don't want to be like that. I like what you said about how the criticism that you see from people is coming from a very unique place. Mm -hmm. I think if you got to see the inner texture of the people who don't like you's existence, you'd feel more pity than anger for the most part. I think you'd pity them. Yes. Um, And that's a realization that's taken a long time for me to, to come up with because everybody else feels, or to me, it always seems like everyone else has got it together. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I get to see only what you choose to say, only what I'm around you doing that I get to see. Mm. Whereas I get to observe my own inefficiency and foibles 10,000 times a second, Mm. right? I get to watch the texture of my own mind be completely unresponsive and useless. I see every single um, prideful decision, every single lie that I tell myself, every single time I make a promise and don't keep it. Mm. But I don't get to see that from everyone. So I'd always presume because of this asymmetry, that everybody else had it sorted and I didn't. And it also made me think that everybody else's opinion was this perfectly balanced, right. well-researched, beautifully, it was, it was they, had, they had me nailed down to a T. Mm-hmm. What they were telling me was the truth. Right. They could see something in me that I couldn't. Right. And after a little bit of time and a good bit of building up of self-confidence, I realized that that's not the case. No. I have pity on a lot of people. I do. Um, I used to get angry about it. Like there was this guy, I talked about it on, on Rogan, this guy from SEAL Team 6 who 
went out there, when I became, started becoming more famous, he went out there and just tried to destroy me, tried to literally destroy me. Talked about how, you know, he just totally lied, totally lied. Had to get a lawyer against him, all, all kind of shit. And I was getting ready to sue this guy. I had a great, I was going to sue him because he literally tried to destroy my character, my reputation. Went out there and just lied his ass off. And I thought to myself, it's about two months into it. I sat back and I started feeling sorry for this guy. Like, really sorry for him. I was, I was going to pull the trigger, sue him. And I said, I'm not going to sue this guy. I said, for you to be this person who comes on and lies and tries to literally tear down everything I've worked for, you are in a very, very bad place. Come to find out, he was in a very bad mental place. So I, I get what you're saying. I've learned to study people before I react because there's no successful person in the world who's in a good headspace that's going to ever attack anyone in that kind of manner. There's always going to be something wrong with them. So you got to always dive a little deeper before you get your feelings hurt, before you get your feelings hurt by that bully at school or that boss at work. Take time. Take that one second to pull back and study them because most people who are in good places, they don't, they, they don't care about what you're doing. They don't care about what you're doing. They don't try to destroy you. They actually will try to build you up versus destroy who you are as a person. So that's where I'm at now in life is most people who do that, they're in a very dark, dark place. What do you think most people get wrong about motivation? They think it's a permanent fix. They think it's something that, that is a constant. They think that maybe once I get it, I'm going to hold on to it. And that's the thing about that I was telling you, that I always talk about, it's nothing is permanent. Nothing is permanent. And a lot of times you have to learn to perform without motivation. You have to learn to perform without purpose. You have to learn to perform a lot of different things. And that's what people think. They think I need to have this motivation to work out, to study, to be better. So if they don't have it, they just don't fucking do it. And that's where you fail. You have to learn to train your mind well beyond motivation. If you have motivation, that's great. That's some kindling to the fire. All it takes is a little bit of fucking spark. You can burn a whole forest up. But motivation, you have to learn to exist without it. You have to learn to be, you have to be your best self when you're least motivated. And that's the tricky part about all that shit. Motivation is just a word. You have to have these different things in your mind on where you want to go and know that motivation is not going to get me there. Because I'm not going to always be motivated. Jocko said the exact same thing. He said that discipline eats motivation for breakfast. And discipline's good too. But without a clear headspace, there's no discipline. What do you mean? So let's say we have a circuit breaker, okay? And I'm loading everything up to one fucking circuit. Just load it up. It's going to fucking blow. And once that thing blows, man, the circuit's all fucked up. You got to have each thing plugged into the right spot, like a fucking crowded garage. You can't put anything in it. Once your brain is crowded, discipline is great. Motivation is great. 
But if you can't fit shit in your brain because it's all fucking cluttered with shit, there's no discipline. You may have it sometimes when it fits in that crowded garage of your mind, but you don't have the consistency that you need to have with that discipline. So what are you talking about here? Are you saying doing self-work and reflecting on you as an individual? Are you so doing therapy? I call, it, I call it my, I call it mental zones. I don't get into it much because it would be here all day. But basically, is you're organizing your mind so you can put that discipline. So a lot of people talk about discipline. Okay, great. Why do you fall off the fucking wagon? Why can't I continue with this routine? Going to the gym, being better, waking up early, eating the right foods. It's because maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your job. And it's all just stuffed in your fucking brain. You don't have it compartmentalized and organized in these nice shelves. Like you look in a garage, it's all fucking a nice organized militant garage. Hey, where are my dumbbells? Right there. A lot of people whose brain, hey, where's my dumbbells? Uh, let me look. They're fucking throwing shit. They're looking through totes. They're all fucked up. So where am I going to put discipline in that mind if I can't find other shit? You got to be able to find all these different things in your mind. Oh, I can put discipline right there. I can put consistency right there. I can put all these things right there in that spot. So that's what I'm talking about. If your life is not organized and your life being everything around you, because it takes one little fucked up piece of an outside interference to clutter your whole mind. Because it's on such a knife edge. That's right. And people don't get that. Your mind has to always be clear. That's why I, that's why I meditate two hours every single night because I refresh, I reorganize the garage, which is my mind every night. So then discipline's in there, organization, everything is in this right spot. So when I wake up, I'm ready to go. What does a morning look like for you at the moment? Have you got a routine of some kind? Yes, I run every single morning. So that's what time the, are you up when you're waking up? I'm up about five, five thirty. So every morning starts with a run. And that's because that's the one thing I hate to do more than anything in the world. So that's like my cup of coffee. And I'm all about armoring yourself. So the second you leave your house and the second you open your phone, the second you do any of that shit you are now letting them poison in cancer. So I make sure a lot of things you can't avoid. So as I get up, I start to armor plate my mind and body. Like a person's going to war, you put your body armor on. That's what I'm doing on that run. I'm waking up and I'm giving myself all this armor. So when I come out in the world, now look at that phone, I'm ready. I'm not waking up late. I'm not rushing around. I'm not disorganized because I know I'm going to get hit in the fucking mouth. There's, a, there's an art to getting hit in the fucking mouth. And that is why these things are important. You have to wake up and you have to give yourself belief. You have to give yourself confidence. So that, it starts with that run. So after the run, I come home, I eat something small. How long is the run typically at the moment? Nowhere under 12 miles. So 12 miles is the minimum. And what are you getting that done in? How long? It depends. Right now I'm running heart rate. So I'm running like 8.15s, 8.30s because I'm retraining right now. Because What's that? Is that zone two for you? Zone two. Yep. Because of the leg surgery I had. So I'm going back, starting from scratch. So anywhere from about an hour 30 to two hours, I run every day. Mm -hmm. So, so you're that. fasted on the morning? Yes. Up, 
straight out. Straight out. 90 minutes to two hours of running, back, yep. eat. Eat, and I'm in the gym. So, and then after that, um, to whatever's on the plan for the day. That's how that works every day. Are you still doing your stretching? Because you've got every two night. hours of- you've Every got night. Two hours of meditation, mm-hmm. 90 minutes to two hours of running. Mm-hmm. How long's the gym session? Depends, 45 to an hour and a half. Okay. Mm-hmm. Stretching, meditation, run, mm-hmm. eat. Mm-hmm. Jim. Mm-hmm. What? Is that my missing Jennifer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Forgot about that. You cycle as well? Yeah. How long are you cycling? It just depends. I do stationary bike right now a lot. Uh-huh. What so, are you using? Is it like a Watt bike or something similar? Yeah, something yep. similar. Yep. So I, I put my bike on a uh, like trainer mm-hmm. and I cycle. Yep. At least three or four days a week, I'll do that. So you, that's your day. There's no, there's no, there is no room for anything else. Yeah, there is. A lot of room. So there's okay. 24 hours, and I and I use it all pretty, pr- pretty well. How's your sleep? What's your sleep like? It's really good. Okay, it You're is getting now eight hours ish, something like that. Seven eight hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you need to with yeah. this sort of volume. Seven eight hours. And you're still doing your stretching stuff every night. Every so you've got a four night. hour block basically of stretching and meditation. Well, no, that's com- all in one block. You combine the two, right? Yeah, that's all in one block. Cool. Yep. That's one hell of a day. It is, and it's been like that for. Seven years. But going back to what you said before about needing to cap success, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to fit well, even one-tenth of that in. Exactly. If you were chasing down. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly it. So if all that's fucked up, that's why I got to cap success because I can't put that in. And, and that's my growth factor. So, you know, that's, that's my human growth factor. You said before about um, how you build up self-esteem and confidence and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's this quote from one of my friends, Alex Hormozzi, that says, you don't become confident by shouting affirmations in the mirror, but by having a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are. Outwork your self-doubt. Yes. That's... The, that's nailed. It. Nailed. Completely nailed. Yes. Because a lot of people will, and some of these motivational people out here, it's, it's the funniest thing in the world to me. They'll go and say, when you wake up in the morning, pound your chest you know, fucking look at yourself in the mirror and do all this fucking bullshit. I hope it works. What works for me is that everyday resume, the things I know I've accomplished, the things I know I've done, real hard work, the real calluses on my mind, the real calluses on my hands. That's that's it. The, you don't need to pound your chest in the mirror the fuck anymore if you have that. It seems like, especially with confidence, right, or self-esteem, there's a relationship between confidence and competence. Mm-hmm. So what you're looking to do is try and have what you believe that you can do be ahead of what you can do. Right. Now, you're not looking for it to be delusional. You don't want it to, to be able to believe that you can do something like fly, right? But you need to have a relationship between the two. But what people are asking for is for their confidence to be so far ahead of their competence that or without having even been competent at anything in the beginning. And that's just delusion. That's fantasy. Right. Well, I believe that you have to build belief. Belief is like, there's an after-school special belief where the mom says, believe in yourself, and that's all great, but there's also a built belief. And the built belief is one where you are constantly, like for me, I came from a bad place. How I build belief is through the, the daunting tasks I put myself through. So that's proof positive, that I can. So it correlates. And that's how this piece of shit kid that I once thought I was built belief by saying, hmm, 
I was in three hell weeks. I went to ranger school. I tried out for Delta Selection. Undeniable stack of proof. That is proof, motherfucker. So whenever you think, whenever you think you can't, confidence comes from the thing that you built. You must build belief. You must build confidence. It can't be like, hey, um, I'm going to knock that shit out. You got to look over here and say, I can knock that shit out. It's belief and it's built on what you put in to yourself. Another friend sent me a, a message this morning knowing that we had this, this big thing that we've been working toward for a long time today. He said, uh, Nietzsche said, I know of no better life purpose than to perish in attempting the great and impossible. The fact that something seems impossible shouldn't be a reason to not pursue it. That's exactly what makes it worth pursuing. Where would the courage and greatness be if success was certain and there was no risk? The only true failure is shrinking away from life's challenges. You nailed that one also. Two for two. You nailed that one also, man. Yeah, it's that, um, it's that dealing with laziness and self-doubt thing, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and I do wonder how many people use the look in the mirror, pound the chest, stare into your eyes, say your affirmations, don't get the results, mm-hmm. and then lose confidence. Well, that's part of it. A lot of it is limited horizons. Limited horizons are like, I use me as an example always. I came from a small town in Indiana where there was a handful of black families. And a lot of people in that town, when you come from a town of 8,000 people, it's like we had a local plant, Great Dane. You're like, you know what? I want to work at Great Dane and get a house next to my mom. That's what you know. So many of us come from these small places in our mind that we're not willing to think outside of only what we've seen. Our mind works in such a small compartment. And one thing I was able to do was to dream. Many people, but don't make dreams your fucking master. But I was able to dream outside those fucking four walls of that small town. And until you're able to really put yourself into that dream, but don't make dreams your master, that's where you truly become what you're destined to become. What do you mean, don't make dreams your master? A lot of people sit back and they dream about being a sports figure or dream about being a SEAL or dream about being an astronaut. And all it is is a motherfucking dream. They don't put the work behind the dream. That dream has become their fucking master. When you become the master of your fucking dream is when you say, I want to go be a Navy SEAL. And you say, okay, I'm going to lose 106 pounds in less than three fucking months. The dream was the one thing I thought about and the dream was now gone. Now what comes in, the dream goes away and the fucking laundry list of fucking details and tasks come up. Got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. That's when you become the master of your dream. So a lot of people out there dreaming, Ryan Holiday says, talking about the thing and doing the thing, vie for the same resources, allocate yours appropriately. That's it. That's it. That's the way it works as well. That's the way that the brain works. You can actually get these kicks of dopamine by telling your friends about, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. I'm going to start my training next mm-hmm. week. It's going to be great. I'm going to feel like this. It feels good. Yeah. It feels good to talk about that shit, man. It actually makes you feel good. makes you feel proud. All that shit. But guess what happens? That alarm clock goes off at 4 a.m. to train. Mm. I don't want to be a seal today. 
I don't want to be whatever today. I'll start tomorrow. And that's the usual pattern of people's lives. That's why I talk about clearing out the mind. Until you really want to do something, you're always going to be a talker. You're always going to run your fucking mouth. So again, with the audio version of this book, Mm -hmm. you've done podcasts in between each chapter where you're recapping what's just happened. Mm -hmm. And this time you brought guests, Mm -hmm. one of which was your mother. Right. And you spend a 35-minute conversation Mm -hmm. sitting down with her and talking about the experiences that she had Mm -hmm. with your father and reflecting on that. Right. A lot of stuff you'd elected to leave out of the first book. Mm -hmm. So that means there's been a journey that you've gone through to get to the stage where both you and her and collaboratively you felt okay sharing that publicly. Right. Like what's that process like? Because your mum didn't ask for this. I mean, you kind of also did. You put a book out there because you thought it was useful and now millions and millions of people know about you. But, you know, the uh, gravity field of your notoriety is starting to bring other people in as well. So what was the journey of getting to that stage like? Well, it wasn't so much me. I had already laid out, you know, a lot of shit about me that was, you know, pretty embarrassing and can't hurt me. So for her, that actually helped her out. She said, wow, if you have the courage to go out there and tell people all your shit, you know, and so that process was, it, it took about four years of me working with my mom because, you know, she was very damaged by what she went through. And so was I. But I knew no one was coming to save me. So I had to go ahead and fix my shit. And she kind of lived in a different place. But when I wrote Can't Hurt Me, it started waking her up. That, hey, man, why do you care? Why do you care so much what people think about you, what you went through? Why, why are you putting so much, so much on other people and what they may say about you? Like there's some stuff I talk about, you know, that is pretty embarrassing for some people. But she got to a point in her life where she was able to, you know, stop caring because we all have our shit. No one, like people, it's so funny to me. There'll be people who are out here commentating about people who are fucking up out here. Famous people are fucking up. And I don't know how they're able to do that when I guarantee while your skeletons are not being out there, if I were to open up your fucking door, motherfucker, how, how, how are you doing that? So I know that about everybody. Like people love to talk shit about somebody and keep themselves out of it. And so we went through that journey together. And so it allowed her to come out and say, yeah, fuck it. You know, I'm, I'm a big person who I want to get people the confidence to walk in a room of a million people and none of them like you. And you just like say, fuck you. I'm good and walk out with you by yourself. And you helped your mom do that as well. And now she can look at everybody and say, yeah, I fucking married a motherfucker that choked a woman to death. I was in a bad place. I'm good with that. One of the days that you focus on a good bit in that conversation is the day that she decided to leave your father right, and take you and your brother with her. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you learned about Sorry. upon reflection? Mm-hmm where both of your experiences uh, opened up a, a new realization to you? That that was a hard time for her and, and, and for me also. I was ready to leave a long time ago. I was just waiting for her to get the courage to finally leave him. And um, I don't think anything from that really, I think that's where the damage really began. I think for her, 
when she left, it almost, her fight went away. And it's kind of like when you run 100 miles. When you sit down, your body can then say, That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm done. That's exactly what I was thinking. The second she left, that the mindset, oh my God, like we can, we can be human. It's like PTSD. Yes. We can be human and we're not fighting anymore. And it just swarmed the demons that all that fight and all that shit was keeping away. It just came and it swallowed, it swallowed her whole. And it also swallowed me whole. But once again, like we were talking about, I got a chance to watch her. And she set out the ultimate blueprint on how not to be. So I had a hard time learning growing up, but I was very smart when it came to human beings. A genius. Because I lived in such hell, I was always studying people. Who can I trust? Who can I not trust? Energy. I, I got really good with energy. Can I, is this person's energy good? Is it bad? So I became a genius on human beings. So I studied people all the time. Studied all the time. She also talks about considering taking her own life. Oh, yeah. Were you aware of that before you started working toward this book? Yeah. Together? So, yeah, she, she talked about that a few times with me, you know, behind closed doors. And um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised she didn't. You know, there's a lot of stories that are still untold that she probably will never talk about. And I'll never talk about them until she says it's fine. But um, yeah, it was it was a bad it was it was a bad way. So I I I give her credit for having the strength to say, okay, I need to continue on and figure out you know what's next for me. She says the only reason that she didn't go through with it is because of you and your brother, because she knew that she would be leaving you in the hands of this tyrant mm-hmm. that was going to mistreat you even more badly now that she wasn't around to protect you. Yeah, which is a it's beautiful, but it's also kind of a lot of pressure. It feels like a lot of pressure for a child to be the reason for his mother to, to still be there. And it's also a damning conclusion about the state of her life. Right. That the only thing stopping you from taking your own life is these two boys. But it's also beautiful in a way because a lot of people only have one thing. You don't need a lot of things. Sometimes the only thing that kept me with that one step forward was one thing. And so that one thing can get you to two things, to three things, to four things. So that was the beautiful thing about that is that now she's 75 and she's retired because of that one thing. How, I mean, you're, you're having this conversation with your mom during the production of the audiobook. Mm-hmm. You're having a conversation which is difficult to have in private. Right with two microphones in front of you, right. knowing full well that this is going out to millions of people. It's going to be scrutinized. It's going to be listened to. It's going to be reflected on. Yep. How difficult is it to watch your mother opening up about an experience which to you was traumatic mm-hmm. and then reopening those wounds in front of you and talking about that for millions of people to hear? Oh, it's, it's hard. It's hard, but it's necessary. Why? To be able to own your trauma, to be able to own everything about you and look it in the eye. Like, there's a part in 8 Mile with Eminem, the very end, when this white boy, you know, fucking trying to make it in the rap world and getting beat down and shit. 
comes from some trailer park shit. And he's like, how the fuck am I going to win this rap battle? Because my best friend got shot in the foot and this dude slept with my girl and all this shit. So what he does to take all the power from the motherfucker who's going to rap battle his ass, he's like, I'm going to tell you every motherfucking thing about me. I'm just going to fucking tell you. And that's how I feel about life. And that's how my mom now feels about life. I'm just going to fucking tell you everything the fuck about me. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to do none of this shit. And it's a refreshing feeling. When you can get in front of millions of people, get an audio book, and you can go through your shit and lay it out, and you walk away. There's no more secrets. There's no more secrets. Like when people say, oh, hey, Lance Armstrong, did you do steroids? No, no, no. Yes. While... I have nothing I have nothing wrong with Lance Armstrong or anybody else. Just fucking tell them motherfuckers, man. And guess what happens to the conversation? It's over. It fucking ends. There's a really telling moment in the book. I think it's my favorite part, and it's not even in this one, it's in the mm-hmm. audiobook. And it's when it's getting quite difficult with your mum mm-hmm. and you offer her a route out. You yep. ask if she wants to take a break. Yep. She says no. Yeah. I want to keep going. So it seems like she's got a bit of that dog in her as well. Oh, yeah, she had to. Yeah, she had to. One, one thing that when you grow up the way, we kind of grew up together. That's how I look at it. When you grew up- she young? When she had you she and She had me Trunus at Junior. 28 and my brother at 24. So um, after that, you know, we grew up together and you got to have a dog in you. You have to have a dog in you, man. And so you have to have, a, like, like my grandfather called it, a stiff upper lip. You better have a stiff upper lip. So, you know, yeah, she has some dog in her. She has some dog in her. She has to. There's no other way to make it out here. I mean, you can't just always be, you know, head down in the sand. You got to learn to pick yourself up on your own. A lot of times these fights and these battles, you got to be your own fucking coach. You got to be your own motivator. And she had to do that several times in her life. Given all of this trauma that you go through, why would you choose to go back and see this tyrant of a father for one last time it was the only way for me to move forward so like a lot of times if your back is hurting it may not be your fucking back it may be something else in your body that's making your back hurt for me i'm like man why can't i get past this fucking hurdle so like i said i'm always examining myself every day what is it what is it well there's only one thing you haven't examined yet and it's going back to the beast, going back to the demon. So when I went back to him, I realized that that was the unsolved mystery. Was I had to look that man in the eye one more time. Like how I studied the, that Navy SEAL talking shit and lying. I got it from this part right here in the book. I went and I didn't see him anymore as this beast. I started doing research on him. Found out that his dad used to beat him really bad. So my, his, his dad would put him in front of a furnace, open the furnace up with the flames coming out and put him right in front of it, have him bare butt naked and he would whip the shit out of him. And the whole idea of that is if you move, you're going to get burned. So stay right here and take your fucking beating. So what happened with him, those demons from his father went to my father and he tried to transfer him over to me. 
I had to understand who my father was, understand where he came from, understand why were you so fucking brutal to us? I got my answers, took those answers and made myself better from the answers about him. And so that's why it was necessary for me to go back. Not, I was looking for an apology. So then maybe I could just go be a loser and understand that you fucked me up. Why would the apology make you a loser? It would make, no, it would make me feel vindicated. Justified. Yes. Like, man, you, you did this to me. I can go be a loser now. My failings are okay. This okay. Yep. Because you did this. So I was looking for that. And when I went there, I, I, I realized because this voice in here was saying, it's not your dad's fault. Now I'm like, nah, man. Because this voice over here always said, it's your dad's fault. This other voice started tuning in, was loud, started getting louder. The more I drove to Buffalo, was saying, you get to face a lot of shit, young man. You got a long journey ahead of you because you're going to find out that while your dad did a lot of shit to you, you're going to have to fucking make it on your own. And the voice got louder and louder and louder. And by the time I got to that door and by the time I was leaving that house, instead of me feeling sorry for myself, I started to do a live autopsy. Because a lot of people, when you die, they figure out why you died. They figure out how you died in the autopsy. But we never do a live autopsy to figure out why we're dying while we are alive. And I was dying. I was living every day. But I was really dead. And so I figured it out. And once I figured it out, I was able to reborn. I was able to be reborn. What we see is this pattern of generational trauma. Mm -hmm. Your grandfather to your father, your father to you, Mm -hmm. father to son just being passed on, passed on, passed on. Mm -hmm. Is this part of your mission to be a circuit breaker, to be a, a dam, to stop this trauma from moving forward into the next generation? hundred percent. But with people, I'm trying to build people up. I'm trying to armor their mind. I'm trying to get them the belief because this world we live in is tough. It's tough. It will beat you down. The world and the life that we live in is the ultimate competitor. It will try to take you out. It will, it will find your weakness and it will fucking just hammer you. It's like a personal curse. hundred percent. So, if I can help you build belief, build confidence to the point where nothing can hurt you because you know exactly who you are. You've faced your demons. You've, you've been able to go on an audio book in your mind. Maybe you didn't write a book, but in your mind, you were able to hear all your past traumas. You were able to listen to them. You're able to fucking say, okay, now I can now talk to people about what I went through. I'm no longer embarrassed. I'm no longer ashamed. Being ashamed is one of the biggest things that kill people nowadays in their minds, kill them from moving forward. I'm ashamed of myself. Don't ever be ashamed of anything you've done in your life. Face it, fix it, make it better. We are humans. But then again, if you always think that we're humans, you will always just be a human and always make the same fucking mistakes. You must take this knowledge that you learn from all this shit is knowledge. So I'm just trying to give people that strength to go in the archives of your life because while you're probably fucked up, it's probably something happened to you in your life. Go through the archives, dig it up, study it, and then use it for yourself. That's, That's the main purpose for me right now. Have you considered what you would be like as a father? 
Yeah. I actually have a daughter right now. Yeah. No way. I didn't know. Yeah. I have a daughter right now. But that being said, I'm an open, honest person. When you meet people at a young age, so I had a kid at a young age when I was in the worst possible place in my life. So when you're in a bad place, you're not going to meet a kish. You're going to meet a person that's very similar to who you are at that time. And then you bring a child into this world. And as you start to move up in this world and get better, and you realize, I need to get better, you try to pull that person along with you. A lot of times, they don't want to come where you're going. And it creates a bad environment. So that's where that is right now. Talking but my about- daughter's 21 years old, though. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I yep. think I, I think that uh, it would be all of the learnings and stuff that you've been through as a father, as a son, as a grandson. Um, it makes sense to me that that would have been uh, something that could have been passed down. Mm-hmm. So thinking about uh, trauma and stuff that you go through in your past, mm-hmm. um Throughout most of school, for me, I was pretty isolated. Only child, uh, pretty unpopular in school. And right. the main issue that I had was, it wasn't bullying, it was isolation, I think. It was being lonely. Right. Um, and that was primarily what was causing me to be sad throughout school. Right. So I do this interview for the BBC about six months ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, in it, I talk about, I haven't opened up that much about bullying. I, I need to do it more. And it, it is, you know, even from watching you go through opening up about your traumas is inspiring. Uh, so I do this interview for the BBC and I mention a little bit about bullying in school. And So why don't you mention it? I haven't got around to it yet. I, I maybe still feel like it detracts from the man that I want to be, the masculine man, the um, respected podcaster, that it somehow undermines me as a person, that it makes me weaker which is obviously what was, you know, part of the bullying's purpose in school mm-hmm. to be able to do precisely that. Right. So I do this interview for the BBC and I mentioned in two paragraphs or something, but millions of people see this article. Uh, and I get back one day and in my Instagram message requests is this message from a guy and I kind of recognize his name, but not, not fully. And I don't know whether you know, but there's like a character limit in Instagram. Yes, uh, yes. So, and this is five character limit messages long with multiple paragraphs within each of them. Right. right? So I open it up uh, and this guy says, uh, hi, Chris, you might not remember me, but we went to school together. Uh, I bullied you. My daughter is four Mm -hmm. and she's about to go to school. And given that she's about to go to school, me and my wife have been discussing about the kind of child that we want her to be. Mm -hmm. And that caused me to reflect on my time that I spent in school. I saw... I've been thinking about messaging you for a while. I've been considering talking to you uh, because I really felt like I needed to, because I felt ashamed of the way that I treated you in school and I knew that it had hurt you. Uh, And then I saw this article from the BBC and I just had to reach out. And I've been sleepless nights speaking to the wife, tears and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just wanted to say that I'm sorry. Uh, I'm very sorry for what I did. Um, I wanted to let you know that my daughter is going to be raised in a way that will never treat anybody like that again. Um, I don't 
expect you to forgive me. I don't even know if you'll see this message. I'm happy to see that you seem to be happy. Um, but I, I needed to get it off my chest. Right. I'm like, fuck, totally taken aback. Like wasn't prepared <laughs> for this. I have come back in from the gym or something and I'm sat reading this message like fucking hell. That's heavy. So I go back through and I think, well, how do I feel about this? How do I feel about this person? How do I feel about my experience? Right. Um, because it was so formative, right? It shaped so much of the way that I see myself, the way that I see the world. I had to deprogram so much of the patterns that I'd learned right. through that time. Um, my desire for validation from other people, right. uh, my need to be liked, my constant vigilance, my ambient anxiety that I was always looking for what was going on, my concern of being left out, yep. my adamant uh, nature that everybody was um, able to judge something about me that I didn't know about myself. Yep. But this guy had like fully, fully opened up to me. And I thought, well, you know, I, I, uh, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful message. Mm -hmm. um, so I replied to him and I said, hey man, um, I very much appreciate you reaching out. I think it's an incredibly brave thing to do. And if me going through what I went through and then the pain and discomfort and such, and your subsequent suffering of reflecting on what you did. Mm -hmm. If that has led to a world in which your daughter will be the sort of person who will behave in a manner that's going to make the world a better place going forward. I think that's a price that's worth paying. That's awesome, man. That's a, that's a great story. That's a great story. And you're the, you're the expert on it. That's why you should talk about bullying. I know. Yeah, you're the expert. And that's why I do it. You know, um, that's why I become, I, I, I become so vulnerable because all that knowledge you gain, because now you are successful. And there's so many people who are getting bullied in so many ways that, you know, you just show them that there's a path. But the path is really, like I talk about, studying the bully. That's the path. Studying the bully. Were you ever tempted to become a bully? Never. Never. I'm always, like I said, like I told you before this started, I wanted to be a priest. I wanted to be a priest, you know. And um, Could you imagine one of those sermons? Oh, it'd be sick because I, I would cuss. Because I would, I would definitely cuss. Praise the Lord, motherfuckers. That's it. I would definitely <laughs> cuss. I would definitely cuss, man, because that's, that's the world. And there's a lot of people who probably hear this like, oh, my God, that's, this is, oh, my God, let me close my ear. You know, this, the world's tough. The world's tough. And when you come up the way I came up, the only way I can fucking describe something sometimes is say fuck or motherfuck. Because that's how dark this shit was. And I can't make it flowery. I can't make it PG. Like, oh, I want my kids to, like, I have a clean edition of this book. Have a oh, you have a non-explicit version? Yes, because people are like, I want my, I want my kid to read your book. But you, but you cuss so much, I can't. I imagine it's about half the size. Yes, it's yeah. very small. Yes. So, <laughs> so the funny thing about it is, like, how long are you going to shelter your child from a world that's evil as shit? That's going to come at you. It's going to come at you whether you've been bullied or not. There's going to come a time when it's going to come at you. And 
It's going to be a lot worse than fuck or motherfuck. It's going to be a lot worse. And so we are training kids and people to be soft in a world that continuously gets harder. And it doesn't, it doesn't correlate. Like that guy talking about the tear gas with the seals. Is that necessary? I don't know. But what is necessary is you have to build a person that can withstand the pressures of whatever they're going to be dealing with in life. And we don't do that. I'm not trying to send a message of run 200 miles, be the best motherfucker in the world, but be tough. You better have a part about you that's tough, a part about you that can break down situations and get better and break down situations very quickly within some trauma in your life, some devastation in your life, because it's going to come. The devastation, the trauma is going to come, and you can't allow that to become a jersey barrier. It can't be a jersey barrier. It has to be something that you can maneuver through very quickly and move forward. That takes a lot of toughness. Well, unchosen suffering is going to happen, mm-hmm. right? So the only thing that you can do is have some chosen suffering to prepare for it. It's the only thing you can do. That's the only thing you can practice for the unchosen suffering is have chosen suffering. Do something that sucks every day. I had Huberman on the show mm-hmm. a few months ago, and he told me about bringing you into his lab and putting you in VR underwater with sharks. Right. Give me your experience with Huberman. He's great. He, he knows his stuff. He knows his stuff. Um, yeah, he's just a, he's a very knowledgeable man on what he's doing. What's being in VR with sharks like? It's nothing. No? No. No, because one thing about me is I deal in reality. You put me in VR as VR. It's a fake thing. And I work in reality. I only work in reality. I don't work in fake situations. So that's why it didn't work on me. You put me in a real ocean with real sharks, you'll get your real reaction. You put me in a room that I, when you walk in the door, and you sit down in the chair and you put some shit on your fucking face. I know I'm in a fucking chair. I know I'm in a room. If you get that psyched the fuck out, you need to study that more than that. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Why are you so sensitive? Why, Why are you, you so, so fragile? Sen- yes. Yep. If you are on a high wire because you're afraid of heights, but you're sitting firmly on the fucking ground, mm-hmm. you need to study the fact that you're doing something wrong. Don't study the afraid of heights. Study, why the fuck do I know I'm on the fucking ground in a fucking chair, but I'm afraid of what's on this screen? So I don't allow anything to go beyond the truth. He said that, um, obviously you didn't know this in advance. It could have been the most lifelike VR in the history of the world. And apparently it was a group of you guys Mm -hmm. and someone had to go first. Mm -hmm. Someone had to go first. You're not that good with water. Mm -hmm. Not sure how you feel about sharks, but can't Mm -hmm. imagine you're a fan. Um, and you were just like, me, mm-hmm. me, please. Yep. I'm first. Yeah, I'm like that with everything. Because why sit <clears> back <throat> in the back and think about, let me watch you go first. You can watch me go first. Is there anything that you'd like to study with Huberman? Would there be any like cool tests? Is there anything that you've been thinking about to do with performance or anything like that at the moment? No. You've just got your own mental lab. You're I doing got everything my own mental yourself. Lab. Every, Everything I need is in my mental lab. Everything. Because I'm in constant study of myself. 
That's and I know what needs to be conquered because I'm constantly going through what I don't like, what I'm not comfortable with. You know, like I'm I know and only I can fix these problems. Cause I have to face these problems. So I have a rolling a rolling log on what needs to happen. So I'm I'm really good about being accountable about okay. You need to be better here. You need to be better here. You need to overcome this, overcome that. And I do a good job of doing that. You talk about performance without a purpose. Mm-hmm. What's that? So like, for instance, let's say you have no races. Let's say you have no classes, no nothing. You have, there's no purpose in your life. You know, people need to have purpose to get up. They need purpose to perform. You need to get to a point in your life where there's nothing on the docket. There is no 5K. There's no, there's no, um, I'm going to get into school to be this or that and still perform to the highest level. Because what people don't get is one day that thing's going to come up. And if you're not constantly performing without purpose, you're not going to be ready when the time comes. It's this magical thing, purpose that we're all looking for. But what's funny about it all is that we need these things to perform. But we don't take a second to realize the purpose is always there. The purpose never leaves us because the very purpose is you. You are always the purpose. There may be another purpose, like being a SEAL or going to college or whatever, but the main purpose in life is you. So if you wake up in the morning and you don't want to do something, you don't care enough about yourself. And that's what you need to really research is, man, why am I not doing this for myself? Because that is, that is the number one purpose in life is to better oneself. So that's the only purpose I fucking need. So the reason I get up every day, even though there's no race or there's no school, or there's nothing in front of me is because I have pride in myself. But where do you go to? You wake up on a morning, it's cold, it's mm-hmm. wet, it's dark. You've got no cartilage in your knee. You've mm-hmm. got shitty shorts, whatever it is that's the issue today. Keep talking. (laughs) You've got these problems, right? I need you to keep talking about what you were just saying. It's warm on the couch. Your missus says stay in bed. It's comfy. It's cozy. You've got work later on. You had an argument last night. You're slightly hungover. Because I know every motherfucker ain't going to do what I'm going to do. So this is how you level up. That's how you level up. I know there's a whole bunch of people with that right there that fires me up. That makes me fucking happy, what you just said. That brings joy to my life right there. Why? Because I know there's so many people that have the ability and just refuse to get off that couch, refuse to study a few more hours, refuse to go deeper, to go further. And that's where I gain the advantage. It's so easy to be great nowadays, my friend, because most people are weak. Most people don't want to go to that extra mile. Most people don't want to find that extra because it sucks. It's miserable. It's lonely. You talk about that you were kind of, you know, lonely by yourself. I was the same way. And that used to hurt me growing up. Now I fucking thrive in that shit. That's the only place to be. Well, that was one of the things that is so surprising about growing up through difficulty you know, so loneliness is one example, right? Mm -hmm. Growing up as a lonely kid. What you realize is a lot of the things that you feared 
or hated or embarrassed about as a child end up being the genesis of the things that you're most proud about as an adult. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you can work and thrive in solitude gives you the opportunity to be able to move to America and start a podcast or mm -hmm. decide to do uh, Hell Week three times in a row, or it doesn't matter how long or dark the course is, you're just going to stay. Mm -hmm. The fact that you were uh, forced to be vigilant and to assess people, mm -hmm. to work out what's going on when you became an adult allows you to detect the vibe and the energy of whoever it is that you're speaking with and know that this person's someone that I want to hang with and this person's somebody that I don't. Right. All of the things, in fact, I would go as far as to say there's not one thing in my life that I see as a pure advantage that doesn't have a dark side to it that mm -hmm. came about at some other point as well. Right. So one of the reasons that I spent so much time as a kid in my bedroom listening to audio tapes because I didn't have anyone to play with, right? Only child, a little bit sort of unpopular. Right. So I'd be in my bedroom listening to audio tapes. We'd go to the library every two weeks and we'd take the tapes back and we'd get new tapes and I'd bring them and listen to them again. Right. But you roll the clock forward 20 years and what's the 2023 version of an audio tape? It's a podcast. It's a podcast. That's right. A lot of the things that you love and value in yourself in adulthood Mm -hmm. are the light side of something that you were ashamed, fearful, disgusted by when you were younger? Yeah. I mean, I think that comes from overcoming. A lot of people, you know, wonder, how did you become this? How did you become so vulnerable? How, did you be, how are you doing a podcast now when you were this kid? You overcame things. You fought them. And now this is what happens. This is on the other side of overcoming. It becomes, you become very, very powerful when you overcome yourself. All those things you once cowered from, you were afraid of, when you face them eye to eye every day, you now become a person who has a great podcast. Let's say that there's someone listening who resonates with what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been through trauma, they've been through hard times, mm -hmm. but they keep breaking promises to themselves mm -hmm. and they're struggling to get off the couch and they're having a pity party. Mm -hmm. How can they stop feeling sorry for themselves? That's a difficult one. Because you have to want it. You have to want to be better. And it starts off with you have to have pride in yourself. You, you have to have pride in yourself. You have to have, there's something about you, whether it's your last name, whether it's just the smallest thing. You have to be proud of yourself. And if you have no pride in yourself, I can't give it to you. Because you're always going to compromise. You're always, always going to fold. Always. I'm very proud of myself. That's why when people said, you know way you can do better than can't hurt me. Roger that. We'll fucking see. It's that pride that wakes you up. And I'm not talking about bad pride. I, I'm a, the, the attention to detail for the human being I want to do. I call this thing, like, I want to be the standard. I want to be that guy. Like, every place I went in the military, there was this ethos about how this place is, how we're going to live, how we're going to represent ourselves. And I walked around and I saw that most people didn't live up to that ethos. Like if you go to whatever, whatever company, they, they had this mission statement on how we want to run our company. I made one for myself on how I want to be and that is why if people can make up a mission statement, an ethos in which they want to live by, 
And every morning you wake up, you hold yourself accountable to that mission. Not a company's your own. Make up your own mission statement. What do you want to be in life? And once you do that, now you can work with somebody to get better. You can work with yourself to get better. But until you know what you want to stand for, you will always just be sitting down. You'll never stand for anything. What's that quote? If you don't stand for uh, something, you'll fall for everything. That's it. It's a true statement. In the book, you talk about uh, Roger that, there being two types of Roger that. Mm -hmm. I absolutely adore the second type. <laughs> uh, received orders given, expect results. That's it. That's it. So cool. Above and beyond more than was expected That's right. to the letter. That's Roger that. That is, for me, what Roger that means. Received orders given. Yep. Expect results. Expect results. That's right. So fucking dope. That is it. That is it. And when you hear that from somebody who gets it, you know it because you can look in their eyes. You feel that energy, man. It connects immediately. They're out here to get a job done. Roger that. So. The start of the book, or at least the start of the audio book, mm -hmm. you've got a few different intros. Right. Uh, Rogan. Yep. Your mum. Mm -hmm. And The Rock. Right. Uh, slightly odd trifecta, but I, 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 <laughs> Very. Do, I do think it works. So obviously your time, Rogan's had you on now the third time mm -hmm. that you've been on. What have you learned since being friends with him? He's a very singular individual. You know what? One thing about him is that he's made it. And he's all about everybody else making it. There's one thing that he believes in is that there's enough food, enough cake for everybody out here to eat. So there's a lot of people in this world who don't want to see you make it because they think you could take a piece of their pie. That motherfucker's like, look, dude. Pie got, for everybody. I got 14 pies, bro. One for every motherfucker here. And so he's all about people making it. And that's something that a lot of us can you know, learn from. That people think, oh, I made it. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm not going to help anybody else out. The thing is, I don't even know if he was, uh, I, I, something tells me he had that philosophy before he'd even made it yeah. as he was on the come up. Yeah. I mean, I really didn't know him that much back yep. then, but um, the, he really is to me, the Oprah of the modern day. He's the Oprah of the modern day. You know, that, that guy's just has made so many people known to the world gotten so many messages out. So, yeah. I said, uh, I was talking to Andrew Schultz about the same thing and he'd said very similar sentiment, especially he's coming from a comedy uh, angle, right. right? And if you're going to be championed in comedy, it's super, super difficult. Right. And what he, what he said was that uh, the comedy world is so zero sum, like your gig is not my gig. That's right. And the fact that you can have someone that just gives that gift out is very rare. Another friend his wife does Ayurvedic medicine. So it's, I'm not really too sure what it is, but she did something to do with like tarot card reading. Okay. And he asked her, he was about to go on Rogan's podcast. So he asked her to do the tarot card readings about Joe, because it might give him a little bit more insight or it'd just be interesting in general. And the tarot card that she pulls out might not be tarot, it'll be something similar. The card that she pulled out was um, a older warrior cross-legged sat under a tree with his hands like that. This guy that had, and he's got a weapon down next to him. Uh -huh. Weapons laid down, transcended the battle. And I was like, holy fuck. 
Okay, I'm, not re- I'm, I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure about what's going on with this tarot card reading thing, but that one seems pretty accurate. It's probably perfect for him. Yeah. 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 There's something about um, raising other people up as you go along. Oh um, yeah. That you know, as you get a platform, as you have the opportunity to expose other people that are almost all of your time as a podcaster is slipstreaming other people who have bigger platforms. And then after a while, you get to the stage where you can be that springboard for others. Right. Some unbelievably talented person that nobody knows about. True you statement. Go, there you go. Now the world can know about you. He's done the best at that. He's the best at that. What about The Rock? Have you ever met him? You ever trained with him? Never. Never. We just DM'd. And I was like, I'm going to give you a shot in the dark. You know, the guy follows me. He knows about me, whatever. But I was like, this guy's so big, man. He ain't going to fuck it. So I was DMing him, man. Within like 20 minutes, hey, man, what's up, brother? Sends me a voice message in DM. Been following your work, man. Love what you fucking do. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, no problem, man. I'll, I'll hook you up. I'll uh, be more than honored to hook you up. And in the audio book, what people don't know, is I left him alone. I was like, hey, man, thank you. I appreciate it. I want to bother you. Go back to doing the great work that you do. You're so busy. So I was doing the audio book. He was like, hey, brother, you want me to, um, you know, read what I wrote for you for the audio book? And I was like, yeah, that's great. That's how the idea came about. It was actually the Rock's idea for him to do the blurb. So then I got Joe Rogan and I got my mom to read the blurbs. So that came from him. I wasn't going to put the blurbs in the audiobook, but he was like, hey, man, I got a studio right here. I'll blast it out, send it over to you, and we'll get it done. That's a training session that the world wants to see. I believe so. I believe so. That should be part of the book tour. It should be <laughs> a, training, a training session between you guys. Talk me through what the next phase of your life has in store. Um, so after this podcast... I probably won't do another one for a very long time. And I did my book came out on the 6th. It's now the 16th. I did my 10 days of the book and now it's done. And now it's going back to the lab. So now I go back, go back to firefighting, go back to finding another level of David Goggins. And that's done in quiet areas and finding more of myself, finding these, these spaces that haven't, you know, discovered yet in my mind and I really love that about life I love mastering self I love it I love it there's there's nothing more because I know where I came from and it's amazing that where I came from that person could have died that very fat lazy unfulfilled person and with inside that person was this person talking to you is very freaky to me. And a lot of us have these two people that you have greatness way over here, but you decide to live in this space over here because between greatness or between this space here and greatness, there's a lot of fucking work. There's so much space to fill in with work. And we just say, fuck it. I'll just stay over here in this space. So I like to fucking examine all these spaces and there's, there's still more. There's still more, still a lot more. Are you aiming to find peace at any point? Think about this. I love that question. I'm glad you, I'm so glad you asked it. 
you know a little bit about me. When you've come from that place I talk about to the place I am now, it's not the peace you find. It's the peace I find. And I find so much peace in looking back at that young David, eight years old, with white splotches on his face and stuttering and hair patches falling out. And I look at him and I'm like, man, there's so much peace in knowing what I've accomplished and what I've done. So my peace may be different for others. That's why I never critique or never judge anyone because I don't know your story, where you come from. I found peace years ago, years ago. In the battle, in the battle, you find peace. When you go to war with yourself, you find a lot of peace because you know exactly who you are. And that is where the peace is really found for me. David, you're a spectacular individual. I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, the book is fantastic. Your message is fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to see what you do next, even I, if it takes five years. I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 